Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In recent years, America's two-party system has seemed more intractable than ever. Democrats versus Republicans. We have a clear idea of each party's location on the political map. Democrats are liberal, Republicans conservative. Democrats are left-leaning, Republicans right-leaning. Right now, those truths seem so deeply entrenched that they seem almost natural. It's always been this way, and it always will be. But if historians know anything, it's this. Things change. In fact, the American Historical Association's definition of the discipline of history says that historical study, quote, requires the ability to identify and explain continuity and change over time. The concept of change over time is central to what we do as historians. And yet, the very idea that things change over time is anathema to some people. For literally centuries, conservative people, groups, and movements have gained power by arguing that change over time is not just natural, but inherently threatening, degrading, and generally bad. So while scores of U.S. historians have written hundreds, maybe thousands of books on the various stages of American party politics and the party's shifting platforms and ideologies, there are folks who vociferously insist that many of those changes never happened and are actually just an insidious leftist myth. Take, for instance, the classic tweet from Charlie Kirk, which seems to maybe have been deleted now but which I screenshot in 2019 um, and I show to my students just about every semester. So I, um, I will post this in our show notes, the, the, the screenshot, but just to sort of give you a, a, a summary of it, Charlie Kirk tweeted on February 1st, 2019, quote, facts, 100% of Republicans voted to free slaves. 23% of Democrats did. 94% of Republicans voted to give former slaves citizenship. 0% of Democrats did. 100% of Republicans voted to give freed slaves voting rights. 0% of Democrats did. Okay, Charlie. Uh, First, are these facts? Um, I'm not exactly certain of the stats here. And frankly, I'm not interested in the immense amount of data crunching that it would require to actually fact check each of these percentages. I will just leave that to other historians to do. But more importantly, setting aside whether the exact numbers are right or wrong, is good old Charlie correct? Well, I mean, sort of. But is this a good faith representation of party politics in the post-Civil War era? Absolutely not, because of, say it with me, change over time. Today, as part of our series on change over time and our ongoing exploration of the five C's of historical thinking, we're doing a sweeping overview of the American political party systems from the feud between Jefferson and Hamilton to, well, Charlie Kirk, I guess. I'm Sarah. And I'm Marissa. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig.
Before we begin, we want to thank all of our Patreon supporters and especially our fabulous auger and excavator level patrons. Carl, Hannah, Lauren, Colin, Edward, Iris, Susan, Denise, Agnes, Jesse, Karen, Maria, and Audrey. Your support is hugely helpful to our being able to do this work, from helping us to have great sound and an accessible website to letting us order books. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com backslash dig podcast to learn more. Right from the very beginning, I just want to say thank you so much to our patron, Karen, for suggesting this as a topic for this episode. Um, it, I think, is the perfect vehicle for thinking about change over time. And I really hope this is what you were looking for. Thanks again so much for requesting this. Thanks, Karen. I want to start with an acknowledgement of the books that I relied on to write this episode. I really enjoyed James. Um, I'm going to assume that it's pronounced Reichley, uh, James Reichley's The Life of the Parties, which isn't exactly an academic history, but which is highly readable and actually quite detailed and offers a great overview of a synthetic history of American political parties. I also used Eric Schickler's racial realignment to learn more about the party switch that happened around the issue of civil rights in the mid-20th century. I also found myself referring back to Carol Birkin's A Brilliant Solution about the drafting of the Constitution, um, which I actually returned to over and over again and has kind of become one of my favorites. I also want to say really briefly, this episode is a synthesis, which means we're going broad and shallow. There are lots of smaller local and state political trends, third parties, and other details that we're just not going to get into here. That's not to say that they're not important or relevant, but only that they're just outside of our scope in this episode. In September 1796, George Washington chose not to run again for re-election to the presidency, a powerful decision that set a precedent into the 20th century that an American president should only be elected president twice. Knowing his retirement was a turning point for the very young nation, Washington wrote, well, wrote with the help of his close confidants, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, a farewell address, which expressed to the American people his hopes and fears for the future of the United States. The biggest takeaway of the speech was Washington's advice to Americans about foreign affairs, advising them not to get into foreign entanglements or try to punch above its weight on the global stage. But he had another worry that Americans would allow partisan politics to divide them. He implored Americans to remember that they were, first and foremost, Americans. Quote, For this you have every inducement of sympathy and interest, citizens by birth or choice, of a common country. That country has a right to concentrate your affections. The name of American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. Washington here spoke not only to differences in feelings about political issues, but also recognized the partisanship that came with region, reminding Americans that North, South, and West had to work together or fail individually. Now, this didn't come from nowhere. We sometimes talk about Washington's address as if it came from a moment where partisanship didn't already exist, and as if Washington was simply a visionary who could see a divided American future. But Washington was actually speaking both from experience and to the current moment. 
When he warned about regional factionalism, Washington was hearkening back to just a couple of years to 1787, when delegates from the new states were in the process of drafting the Constitution. Regional partisanship was one of the most significant challenges to drafting the Constitution, with states divided largely north versus south over the issue of enslavement. All northern states except New York and New Jersey had already abolished slavery, and even those were fast on their way to abolition. Southern delegates worried that newly free northern states would move against slavery in the South and wanted to ensure their enslaved property was protected. Maybe even more so, they wanted to use the enslaved population to their advantage, specifically in terms of counting population for representation in Congress. Northern states, on the other hand, worried that their lower population would mean they would be at a constant disadvantage. The Constitutional Convention bogged down in protracted debates over how to move forward without alienating one faction or another, and at times threatened to derail the entire process until the Constitution's drafters agreed on compromises. But Washington was also referring to the factionalism of political parties. Even before Washington left office, competing ideologies about American citizenship and governance had already coalesced into rival factions. The first party system came together during the Constitutional Convention as delegates began to fall into two rough camps over whether or not the Constitution itself should be ratified. Alexander Hamilton was easily the most outspoken in favor of the new founding document and led the charge on a series of essays collectively known as the Federalist, now more often referred to as the Federalist Papers. In the essays, which were co-written with John Jay and James Madison, the Federalists defended the newly written Constitution and advocated for its ratification. The Federalist Papers were written in response to another series of essays collectively called the Anti-Federalist, which were criticisms of the new Constitution. The Anti-Federalist Papers were published under pseudonyms like Brutus and Cato, but were likely written by some combination of George Clinton, Patrick Henry, Melanchthon Smith, Robert Yates, Samuel Bryan, and Richard Henry Lee. I also saw um, a claim that one of them may have been written by Mercy Otis Warren, which is a very interesting theory and I didn't have time to dig into very much. And now I sort of want to know where this came from. Um, But I, I guess there's not really a consensus about that. Uh, These two camps grew out of disagreements about the document itself. The Anti-Federalists, for instance, argued that the Constitution didn't do enough to protect individual liberties and thus already needed to be amended. The Federalists disagreed, thinking that these rights were already adequately respected by the document as written. Ultimately, the Federalists didn't win that fight. This is why we have a Bill of Rights that clearly codifies the rights of all Americans. Ultimately, the Anti-Federalists failed in their attempt to stop the Constitution from getting ratified. But the ideological difference of the two groups didn't disappear. Instead, during Washington's presidency, the Anti-Federalists and Federalists solidified into two rival political parties. The Anti-Federalists, having failed to stop ratification and succeeded in getting a Bill of Rights added to the document, no longer styled themselves as Anti-Federalists. With George Washington, who leaned Federalist as president, and their arch enemy, Alexander Hamilton, as Secretary of Treasury, the group began to think of themselves more in terms of their opposition to the current administration. 
Jefferson did serve as Washington's Secretary of State, but he and Hamilton clashed so dramatically over Hamilton's plan for the federal government to assume state debts and establish a national bank that Jefferson left the administration in 1793. During the early 1790s, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison transformed the old Anti-Federalist faction into the Democratic-Republican political party. I'm going to call them the Democratic Republicans, but they're sometimes called Democrats and sometimes called Republicans and sometimes called Jeffersonians. It's it is so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> um, I in my reading for this episode and in my reading just, you know, in general um, on American political history, they are never referred to the same way. Like it's totally bonkers to me that some and it's really confusing because you're like wait a minute what are you talking about the republicans in the 1800 right right like, there wasn't a republican party like oh you mean the democratic republicans so right i'm sticking with that and we just ended up like recycling those words into new parties right. and i've always just called them the jeffersonians just to because that has no baggage um you know right um yeah okay so we're we're going to be calling them the democratic republicans so um, most of the founders had expressed concern, like Washington did in his farewell address, that parties were a danger to the young nation. But Jefferson's thinking shifted in light of his rivalry with Hamilton. Jefferson wrote in 1795, were parties here, meaning the United States, divided merely by a greediness for office as in England, to take a part with either would be unworthy of a reasonable or moral man. But where the principle of difference is as substantial and as strongly pronounced as between the Republicans and the monocrats, he's meaning um, Hamilton's Federalists of our country, I hold it as honorable to take a firm and decided part and as immoral to pursue a middle line as between the parties of honest men and rogues into which every country is divided, end quote. Jefferson's Democratic Republicans were the opposition party during Washington's and John Adams's administrations. The Federalists, with strongholds in the Northeast and in urban areas, uh, were in favor of a very strong central government, a national bank, and tariffs on foreign goods. The party was in favor of good diplomatic relations with Great Britain, as demonstrated by John Jay's successful treaty with the British in 1797 that helped to ease some of the unresolved tensions after the Revolution. Further, the Federalists were pretty anti-French. Uh, they were disturbed by the messiness, of, in particular, of the French Revolution. The Democratic-Republican Party, on the other hand, had more rural and southern support and supported a less robust central government. Jefferson, in particular, was deeply worried that the Federalist Party was dangerously anti-democratic and that it had aristocratic tendencies. There's much made about Hamilton at one point sort of um, suggesting that the the president um, be referred to as uh, his highness or something along those lines that um, was never taken seriously by anyone. But it's still like people are like, oh, this shows his true colors. that He's actually like a, a monarchist. Right. The Democratic-Republicans, influenced by Jefferson's strong personal relationship with the French, supported the French over the British. These differences over which European power to back weren't actually just ideological, though. France and Britain were soon embroiled in war, and which side the Americans supported had big consequences. When the Washington administration backed the Jay Treaty with Great Britain, 
the infuriated French started causing trouble, demanding bribes from American diplomats and attacking American trade vessels, leading to the Quasi-War, an undeclared two-year conflict between the American Navy with support from the British against the French Navy. George Washington was never openly a member of the Federalist Party, but everyone knew he was influenced by Hamilton and agreed with Federalist principles. But while Washington was a popular president, his successor, John Adams, was not. Hamilton, the Federalist heir, chose not to run for president because of the tarnished reputation stemming from his sex scandal. Ooh. Ooh. In 1800, two Democratic-Republicans defeated Adams in the presidential election, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, who tied. And Jefferson was ultimately elected in what was effectively a runoff. Jefferson's election elevated the Democratic-Republicans over the Federalists, and their popularity remained until 1824. In his first inaugural address, Jefferson states, quote, We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists, end quote. It would be tempting to take this as a declaration of unity, but really it was a declaration of victory. As historian James Reikley noted, Jefferson, quote, really meant the party wars were over, that the Republicans had won, and that the Federalists should fit themselves into the new regime as best they could, end quote. During the 1820s, both the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans started to change. In 1824, Thomas Jefferson, by that point an elderly man, wrote that while the names of the parties might change and the specifics of their platforms may shift, they would always be more or less the same. Their constitutions, he wrote to Henry Lee, quote, are naturally divided into two parties. One, those who fear and distrust the people and draw all powers from them into the hands of the higher classes. And two, those who identify themselves with the people, have confidence in them, cherish and consider them as the most honest and safe, although not the most wise depositary of the public interest. By 1820 or so, the Federalist Party was practically non-existent. After Jefferson, the next two presidents, James Madison and James Monroe, were also Democratic-Republican stalwarts. The Federalists ran their last candidate, Rufus King, in 1818. In 1824, four Democratic-Republicans ran for president with no opposition party at all. With no one earning a clear electoral college majority, the decision went to Congress, again, actually, um, as it had in 1800, and Congress ultimately voted for John Quincy Adams. Henry Clay, one of the candidates um, in that election, uh, who was also at the time Speaker of the House, helped use his influence to ensure that John Quincy Adams won the vote. And so when Adams took office, he elevated Clay to Secretary of State. Despite winning the popular vote and the simple electoral college vote, Andrew Jackson lost the election. Jackson was, as you might imagine, livid and declared the election a corrupt bargain. He turned John Quincy Adams, who, as the son of a former president, was the definition of a Nepo baby, into a symbol of old-fashioned, aristocratic, and anti-democratic power. Jackson was determined to run and win in 1828, so spent the following four years building a new coalition that would become known as the Democrats, though sometimes historians clarify that by calling them Jacksonians or Jacksonian Democrats. Jackson found allies and young politicians who had begun their careers as Federalists, including Roger Taney of Maryland, who would later write the majority opinion in the Dred Scott decision, Martin Van Buren in New York, James Buchanan in Pennsylvania. 
He also found enthusiastic support for evangelical Christians, particularly Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, and the Disciples of Christ, all groups invigorated by the revivalism of the Second Great Awakening. Jackson himself was a rough-and-tumble character. He'd served in the War of 1812 as a commander of volunteers um, and helped to win the Battle of New Orleans and then turned into an Indian fighter, turning his military force against the Muscogee Creek and Seminole, as well as against the Spanish in Florida, with an eye toward clearing territory for American settlement. But he was also an ardent Christian, which appealed to these new evangelicals. The Jacksonian Democrats used political success to effectively buy loyalty. When they won office, they used patronage positions to reward those who had helped them win, implementing a spoils system. Further, as the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans had used pamphlets to wage a written war, they used newspapers as organs of the party, more or less controlling the message that readers received. In terms of platform, the new Democrats embraced racial politics and agrarian populism. The Jacksonians pledged to return power to the individual, ordinary, read white and male, Americans through their embrace of universal white male suffrage, meaning that all white men could vote. The election of John Quincy Adams cemented for many that there was a ruling class made up of a few rich, powerful families effectively disenfranchising and ignoring regular Americans. Jackson, on the other hand, made much of his humble beginnings, born to Irish parents in relative poverty somewhere in the Carolinas. No one's exactly sure where or in which Carolina, which I think is interesting. Uh, He was a self-made man, studying law and slowly working his way up through politics in Tennessee while enriching himself by buying and selling enslaved people and speculating on land stolen from Native Americans. Certainly nothing problematic there at all. The Democrats were powerful. Jackson won two terms, followed by one uh, for his lieutenant, Martin Van Buren. During those presidencies, new opposition was coalescing. There was some opposition from the fringe right wing under John C. Calhoun, but that remained largely a South Carolina phenomenon. In the Northeast, left-leaning parties also started to organize. In New York, the local Focos, officially the Equal Rights Party, emerged to advocate for labor rights and push back on the state's powerful Democratic political machine known as Tammany Hall. In the 1820s, a somewhat deranged panic in the Northeast about the Masons led to the emergence of the Anti-Masonic Party. Um, We talked about anti-Masonry in our episode on Fraternal Orders. While not hugely powerful on the national stage, the anti-Masons had lots of success in Vermont, where they embraced evangelical goals like temperance and laws that required the closure of businesses on Sundays. But while the party wasn't nationally viable, it did provide a political starting point for future leaders like Thurlow Weed and William Seward in New York and Thaddeus Stevens in Pennsylvania. It was the bank war, an extraordinarily boring conflict between Andrew Jackson and the Bank of the United States, that helped solidify a new opposition party. Jackson refused to sign a bill renewing the bank's charter, and the resulting conflict plunged the country into a recession. Frustrated with the dissolution of the bank, conservative Democrats, anti-Masons, former Democratic Republicans, and others came together to form the Whig Party. The bank war is one of those. There are a few there are a few moments in American history that I truly cannot make 
stay in my brain. Like the details, I cannot make them stay in my brain. It's like my brain is allergic to knowing things about the bank war. (laughs) Like I just, I just profoundly (laughs) can't care about it. (laughs) The Whigs were primarily concerned with economics, inheritors of Alexander Hamilton's vision of an industrious nation with robust business and manufacturing. They supported high tariffs on foreign goods, also as had Hamilton, uh, and federal spending on infrastructure like roads. But unlike their predecessors, uh, the Federalists, the Whigs also embraced a social and moral vision of the United States. Uh, Hugely influenced by the Second Great Awakening, the Whigs became the party of the genteel middle class, religious, but not radical, and certainly not Catholic, um, but also reformist. They also thought of themselves as conservative, which they understood as meaning solid, traditional, and cautious. To quote a Whig newspaper editor um, assessing politics in the 1840s, quote, There is a law and order, slow and sure, distrustful and cautious party, the Whig party. And there is a radical, innovating, hopeful, boastful, improvident, and go-ahead party, a democratic, loco-foco party. I, I, as I was putting this quote in there, I actually had to read it like six times because I was like, wait, is he trying to sell the Whig party <laughs> like by calling them distrustful and cautious? But what he means is that the Democrats are brash and, and make um, sort of bad decisions, right? They're not slow and careful and cautious like the Whigs. This second party system... Uh, wasn't just about ideological differences, but actually about entirely different ways of living. The Democrats were more associated with white working class, the rough and tumble, and the rural. The Whigs styled themselves as genteel, moral, upright, and middle class. Democrats were drinkers, Whigs were teetotals. And the Whigs were successful. They won the presidency in their first attempt in 1840 with William Henry Harrison, although he died after only a month in office. So were they that successful? Uh, Even John Quincy Adams actually became a Whig at the end of his career in Congress. It was also during the 1830s and 40s that your association with a political party became your identity. Politics was no longer the purview of educated elites like Hamilton, Jefferson, and Adams, but something that regular folks participated in. Campaigns were a form of entertainment. After Martin Van Buren joked that old William Henry Harrison was like a granny who would be happy to live out his life in a log cabin drinking cider, the Whigs actually started literally building fake log cabins at campaign events and had a newspaper called the log cabin. They would have like, they would like set out giant barrels that they would label cider just to like make a play on this offhanded comment that Martin Van Buren made. Right. They're like trolling. basically. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They managed to elect two presidents, uh, Harrison, who died immediately and was succeeded by his vice president, Tyler. They lost in 1844 to Democrat James K. Polk, but then succeeded with Zachary Taylor, who also died this time after just a year. His term was completed by his vice president, a proud son of Buffalo, Millard Fillmore. So there were actually four Whig presidents, but only because two died during their terms and were succeeded by their vice presidents. So there were four Whigs, but only two of them were elected. Ultimately, it was slavery that shattered both the Whig and Democratic parties. 
We won't get into too much detail about the sectional crisis here, only because we just covered it in our recent episode on the causes of the Civil War. But even as the Whig Party was enjoying success, it was already being threatened by third parties. The know-nothings were anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant disgruntled Whigs who felt the party wasn't hard enough on those issues and hoped to see a party do something other than argue over slavery. In 1839, the Liberty Party was established in rural upstate New York, solely focused on the immediate abolition of slavery. It didn't poach many voters from the Whigs, but it did run a presidential candidate, James Burney, in 1840, who not only received an impressive number of votes, but also spoiled the election for Whig Henry Clay in his third and final run for presidency. In 1846, the Wilmot Proviso, uh, the proposed bill that would have banned slavery from any lands potentially received from Mexico in the Mexican War, split the Democrats. Southern Democrats were enraged that some Northern Democrats supported the measure and increasingly looked to radical slaver John C. Calhoun for leadership. In New York, the party split into hunkers who supported the Southern Democrats, knowing that they held the most power in the party and thus were the ones to look to for patronage. They were called hunkers because they were like hunkering down. <laughs> um, and on the other side, the barn burners who were willing to, quote, burn down the barn to get rid of the rats. As the possibility of annexing Texas and then later the possibility of gaining new territories through a war with Mexico loomed, the question of extending slavery became the dividing issue in American politics. In 1844, Martin Van Buren, who you might recall, helped Andrew Jackson to found the Democratic Party, um, actually opposed the annexation of Texas, switched parties entirely, and then ran for president as a barn burner Whig. So the schism was so bad in New York that they actually fielded two entirely different delegations to the National Convention in 1848, and ultimately they just didn't take part at all. The Whig nominee in 1848, Lewis Cass, tried to take a centrist position on enslavement, but centrism only angered the hardline pro-slavery Calhounite wing of the party, as well as the barn burner wing. Another third party emerged, the Free Soil Party, which opposed the extension of slavery into any new territories. Most of the northern middle-class Whigs weren't abolitionists, but that didn't mean that they liked slavery or enjoyed the idea of it spreading. The South already seemed to wield undue power in politics. If enslavement were to spread, the power would only grow. The Free Soil Party, also born in New York, effectively joined the moral anti-slavery of the Liberty Party with the economic interests of the mainline Whigs to make the argument that slavery shouldn't spread because it would interfere with free labor. For both moral and economic reasons, James Reichley writes, quote, the majority of the Northerners were simply not willing to accept the extension of slavery into the developing West, end quote. The 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act, which allowed those territories to vote on whether or not they would allow slavery, created significant unrest and inflamed sectional tensions further. The Free Soil Party was too small and too focused on labor issues to appeal to Northerners, both Whig and Democrat, who wanted to vote for a party that wasn't beholden to the Southern slave power. A new coalition party was born in 1854, likely somewhere in Wisconsin. No one's totally sure. An attendant wrote, quote, we went into that little meeting held in the schoolhouse, Whigs, Free Soilers and Democrats. We came out of it Republicans, end quote. 
The birth of the Republicans especially highlights the idea of change over time when it comes to political parties. To quote James Reikley again, quote, the more equalitarian of the two parties, the Democrats, had become the defenders of slavery, while the Republican Party, descended from the relatively conservative Federalists and Whigs, championed human rights and social justice, end quote. By 1855, the Whigs had dissolved entirely. Most former Whigs joined the new Republican Party, along with some anti-slavery Democrats, Free Soilers, and the remains of the abolitionist Liberty Party. The brand new Republican Party elevated the handsome and dashing John C. Fremont, an anti-slavery explorer whose wife, Jesse Benton Fremont, served as his unofficial advisor, ran his campaign, and was probably as famous, if not more so, than he was. An unofficial slogan for many during the 1856 election was Fremont and Jesse too, (laughs) which I think is very cute. The party's slogan in 1856, the official slogan, um, summed up their central tenets, free labor, free speech, free men, free Kansas, Fremont. (laughs) (laughs) That's cute. (laughs) Fremont was uh, not elected, uh, unfortunately, and instead Democratic stalwart James Buchanan became president. Um, Side note, my husband went to a college in central Pennsylvania called Dickinson College, and their two claims to fame uh, among their alumni are uh, Roger B. Tawney and James Buchanan. <laughs> oh, how lovely. <laughs> Two of the more odious people in American history. Right. <laughs> uh, don't put their pictures up on campus. Uh, by the 1860 election, the Republican Party had ballooned and grown significantly in power. Just mere years after it was first organized, the Republicans fielded seven candidates in their 1860 national convention. It was chaotic madness as the now huge coalition party tried to agree on a candidate that could stand for everything in their party, which included abolitionists and wealthy urbanites and blue collar Midwesterners. We could and maybe we should, although I can definitely (laughs) guess that there will be dissent, um, do an entire episode just on the 1860 Republican convention. But I'll be brief. The outcome was that Abraham Lincoln, a little-known former congressman from Illinois, won the nomination. No Democrats ever became anti-slavery, but Northern Democrats, including uh, another Illinois uh, politician named Stephen Douglas, had been forced to hedge their positions in order to keep Northern votes. Southerners wouldn't vote for anyone who wasn't explicitly pro-slavery, Northern Democrats wouldn't support someone who would advocate solely for Southern interests. The result was a completely bisected Democratic Party. Southern Democrats nominated John C. Breckinridge, vice president to James Buchanan and later uh, to become Confederate Secretary of War. Northerners nominated Stephen Douglas. Without even appearing on the ballot in 10 Southern states, Abraham Lincoln and the New Republican Party won the 1860 election. The Republicans themselves changed over the course of the ensuing Civil War and post-war period. Lincoln, of course, was assassinated, which lent the party loyalty and sympathy, not to mention the bragging rights inherent in winning a civil war. At the close of the war, the radical left wing of the party, known as the Radical Republicans, managed to hold Lincoln's racist Vice President Andrew Johnson to account and flex their new political muscle to reconstruct not just the South, but American society. 
They created a massive social services system, the Pension Bureau, that provided needed cash payments to widows, orphans, and veterans of the war, and set the stage for later programs like Social Security and welfare. They amended the Constitution three times in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and revolutionized what it meant to be an American citizen. After Lincoln's assassination, Grover Cleveland was the only Democrat elected president, twice, um, and that was until the 1920s. The Democrats were unable to shed their association with disunion and their refusal to support the war effort and without the votes of thousands of former Confederates who had been stripped, at least temporarily, of their voting rights, they struggled to maintain political power. Into the Gilded Age, the Democratic Party was able to build some of its power back, anyway, through political machines. I think we mentioned them before, um, but political machines are strongly controlled and organized political organizations that use the spoils system, patronage, and sometimes just straightforward corruption and bribery to maintain political control. The most famous was Tammany Hall, the Democratic, Republican, and then Democratic machine in New York State. By the 1880s, Tammany Hall had changed its approach to winning votes as cities filled with impoverished immigrants. Their system became less spoils and more social services. Tammany offered, quote, a bucket of coals and a basket of food, a rent payment, funeral expenses, clothing and material benefits, along with interventions with the law, such as providing bail, cutting the red tape to receive a license or a permit, or getting charges dismissed. The Republicans also had political machines, though it tended to be more centered on federal rather than state issues, with senators often serving as the heads of them. While the Republicans were very successful during the Gilded Age and did continue to do much to protect human and civil rights, such as the severe crackdown against the KKK and the Enforcement Acts, they also took bribes in exchange for political favors and scandals such as Credit Mobilier. Farmers and laborers, especially in rural areas, started to feel alienated from the Republicans, who it seemed were focused entirely on the problems of the former Confederacy and greedy big business. They also felt no connection to the Democrats, who they felt were controlled by urban political machines. Starting in the 1870s, some farmers in the Midwest and West began to create farmers' alliances to serve as advocacy groups. In the 1890s, when their concerns were exacerbated by a recession, they turned these associations into a new third party, the populists. Populists were focused on economic policies that would benefit farmers socially and culturally. They preached a return to homespun American values and rejected the melting pot cultures that existed in immigrant-heavy urban areas. The populists didn't manage to elect many folks to federal positions, but they significantly affected the 1896 presidential election when a former congressman from Nebraska, William Jennings Bryan, gave a speech, forever after known as the Cross of Gold speech, at the Democratic National Convention, powerfully endorsing the Silver Standard, a position popular with populists who hoped to stimulate the economy. Bryan was elevated to the party's nominee, and populism was more or less absorbed into the Democratic Party. Republicans continued to more or less hold federal power through the remainder of the Gilded Age, and the era from 1896 to about 1925 is considered the fourth American party system. While the populists had ultimately failed, they drew attention to the excesses and corruption of the Gilded Age. In the first quarter of the 20th century, both parties shifted again in response to a wide variety of popular demands for reform 
a movement that we refer to collectively as progressivism. The Civil War generation was aging out, being replaced by energetic, younger politicians interested in reform. Muckraking journalists drew attention to collusion between moneyed interests and politicians, as well as the abuses of workers in industries like textile manufacturing and meatpacking. Other progressives were interested in dismantling those political machines and in protecting democracy, while still others were more interested in using political capital to alleviate poverty, clean up filthy cities, protect children, and expand civil rights. Both Republicans and Democrats were influenced by the progressives, but it was the Republican Party that was more affected. In 1908, former President Theodore Roosevelt split from the Republican Party to create the Bull Moose Progressive Party. Like, all of these third parties just have kick-ass names. Like, the Loco Focos, the Bull Moose Party, <laughs> they're great. Uh, anyway, he so he creates the Bull Moose Progressive Party. Um, and, and he does this because he was frustrated with his old friend, uh, William Howard Taft, who was president at the time for cozying up with big businesses. He saw this as a failure of his old party. Roosevelt filled his new party leadership with reformers, including Jane Addams, the feminist and social reformer, as well as a a variety of environmentalists, trust busters, and industry regulators. The party adopted liberal progressive planks, such as income programs for the elderly, uh, the unemployed and disabled, expanded workers' compensation, an eight-hour workday, women's suffrage, and many, many more. The Progressive Party was short-lived, but did get candidates into Congress. They also managed to spoil the 1912 presidential election for the Republicans, helping get Democrat Woodrow Wilson into office. So ultimately, because they spoiled that election, they sort of made it less likely that a lot of their planks would get adopted, right? It's important to add a note here to say that something different politically was happening in the South. The former Confederacy was a bastion for the Democratic Party, referred to as the Solid South, with a single issue that motivated voters, white supremacy. The political scientist V.O. Key described Southern politics thusly, quote, The predominant consideration in the architecture of Southern political institutions was to assure locally a subordination of the Negro population and externally to block threatened interferences from the outside with these local arrangements, end quote. These Southern Democrats worked tirelessly to dismantle the liberal advancements of the Reconstruction Republicans. In 1904, Georgia politician Tom Watson went so far as to propose a, quote, a change to our Constitution to which will perpetuate white supremacy in Georgia, end quote. Southern Democrats expanded their definition of white supremacy to include anti-Catholicism, anti-Semitism, and anti-immigration positions. So let's just take a minute to clarify something. While the American parties have not always mapped easily onto the left-right paradigm we're familiar with today, we have seen how the parties have shifted positions in terms of liberal and conservative over time. If we wanted to get really deep, we'd have to interrogate how the concepts of liberal and conservative have also changed over time. But in fairly simplistic terms, we've seen a more liberal, democratic, Democratic Party, (laughs) small d Democratic, big d Democratic Party, emerge in the 1830s, which was always contingent on whiteness, 
but which became increasingly more conservative as they doubled down on white supremacy and pro-slavery towards the middle of the 19th century. The Republican Party emerged as a liberal party advocating for abolition in its most radical wing and stopping the spread of slavery in its more moderate wing. After the Civil War, the Republicans became more radically left-leaning as they abolished slavery and enshrined civil and human rights. Then again, during the Progressive Era, Teddy Roosevelt demonstrated how the Republican Party could embrace liberal policies, although the two-party structure made it difficult for his party's left-wing ideas to break through and really make an impact in the, the main part of the Republican Party. So we can say, generally speaking, that the Republican Party was the left-leaning or liberal party, and the Democratic Party was the right-leaning or conservative party up until this point. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that's totally fair to say. So we've described how it's actually more complicated than that, but how you can, if you needed to summarize or kind of generalize, say that. Um, But all that changed in the 1930s. Though the Republicans put three more presidents in office, Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover, their failure to respond effectively to economic problems through the 1920s led to frustration from Western farmer voters. While other parts of the country were experiencing boom times, farmers were struggling with low yields and were trapped in cycles of debt. In 1929, the stock market collapse made these economic problems widespread. Unemployment was rampant, and by 1932, things were only getting worse. Herbert Hoover's approach, basically to let the economy fix itself, was not cutting it. And in 1933, New York Democrat Franklin Delano Roosevelt campaigned for the little man and wholeheartedly embraced liberalism. He proposed a New Deal for Americans, which would put people back to work, infuse federal money into public works and services, and fight back against the depression that was plaguing Americans. The 1933 election was a landslide for Roosevelt and for Democrats, and it revealed a new political alignment that historians call the New Deal Coalition. Roosevelt's proposed New Deal brought in votes from suffering Western farmers, poor Southern whites, immigrants, labor unions, and liberal coastal intellectuals. This can't be understated. Roosevelt realigned party loyalties that were previously considered entrenched. For instance, black Americans who had been Republican loyalists since the Civil War became overwhelmingly Democrats after 1932. Once he was in the Oval Office, and as he made his New Deal promises a reality, Roosevelt only became more liberal, taking his coalition with him. As voters benefited personally and directly from programs like the Tennessee Valley Authority's efforts to bring electricity to the rural South, or the Works Progress Administration's construction projects in urban areas, those voters became liberal, democratic, FDR devotees. The parties had begun the process of switching their positions on the political map. That's not to say that there was no opposition, of course. The Democrats weren't leftist enough to the small American Socialist Party, for instance. Hardline racist and anti-Semitic Democrats, like the vitriolic radio personality and priest Father Chris Coughlin, led the criticism of FDR from the right wing of his party. But for the most part, those conservatives didn't abandon the Democratic Party. James Rakeley suggests that this was because many conservative Democrats were happy enough 
with what the party offered and because it was just too difficult for them to give up the benefits that many of them got from the remaining spoils systems. But he also points out that allegiance to the Democratic Party continued to be important to white supremacists' efforts to keep Black Americans out of political power. Roosevelt actually tried to use the 1938 primaries to push those conservatives and white supremacists out of the party, but mostly failed, which only reassured those conservative Democrats that they still had a place in the party. Between Roosevelt's death in 1945 and the John F. Kennedy years of the 1960s, the Republican Party gradually grew in strength and enthusiasm. Republicans had succeeded in getting Eisenhower elected in 1952. In 1960, young conservatives had tried to get Barry Goldwater, the hard-right Arizona senator, nominated at the National Convention. Goldwater and his supporters thought that the government had grown too large. It was too involved in individual lives. Under FDR and again under JFK and soon under LBJ too, the federal government had increasingly grown to provide social supports. Think of things like the New Deal programs, welfare, Medicare, Medicaid, etc. Conservatives started to style themselves as free market libertarians, focused on an extreme definition of personal liberty and bootstrap economics. They were war hawks who wanted a large and powerful military and also tapped into racist and xenophobic anti-immigration sentiments. While they failed to get him nominated in 1960, Goldwater continued to be a powerful, hard-right force in the Republican Party and was easily nominated in 1964. In 1964, Goldwater's hardline conservatism exemplified in his famous statement that, quote, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, end quote, persuaded the solid South to finally abandon the Democratic Party. While Lyndon Johnson won the 1964 election handily by winning the Northeast and Midwest and earned the votes of nearly every demographic except Southern whites, Goldwater showed that those white Southerners were attracted to extreme hard-right politics. In Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Georgia, Goldwater won by between 50 to 70 percent, even though those states hadn't even had an active Republican Party just four years earlier. While many historians suggest that it was the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that cemented that the formerly Democratic Solid South had become the new Republican Solid South, others point out that this was a process underway as far back as the 1930s. Since FDR's election, Black Americans had been streaming out of their traditional place in the Republican Party, and most, though not all, Republican Party leaders felt no need to try to get them to return. Wendell Wilkie, the party's candidate in 1940, had spoken directly to Black Americans by calling for anti-lynching measures and ending discrimination in civil and military service. By 1944, Thomas Dewey's campaign was more ambivalent. Then, by the time Eisenhower ran in 1952, the planks related to race were even more mealy-mouthed, calling only for generic federal action towards the elimination of lynching, for instance. I love that. Federal action towards the elimination. like Right. Like, let's kind of giving start them... thinking about maybe not killing people. Like, right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and Eisenhower was the first Republican in decades to actively campaign in the South. 
the black people still active in the Republican Party, and there were some, um, were unhappy about this, but they also found themselves increasingly isolated and without political capital to make any change. Eisenhower's attempt to win back the South concerned black Americans who worried that the Republican Party was flirting with segregationist and white supremacist talking points. A cartoon from the Chicago Defender, a famous black newspaper from Chicago, depicted Eisenhower, known as Ike, holding his finger in a dike that just barely held back a flood of white supremacist policies. It's called, if you're wondering, Ike at the dike. (laughs) But Eisenhower had showed up, at least in limited ways, to protect civil rights, sending out the National Guard to enforce the Brown v. Board decision and signing the Civil Rights Act of 1957. But even though it was a process begun many years earlier, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, late, you know, the, the, there was one in 57 and then there's another one in 1964, this one signed by Democrat Lyndon Baines Johnson, or LBJ, was the death knell of the New Deal Coalition. White Southerners, who had been the center of the Democratic Party going back to the days of Andrew Jackson, left the party en masse and joined the Republican Party, which had jettisoned its earlier positions of advancing and protecting civil rights through federal intervention. Instead, the Republican Party became one of small government, bootstrap economics, and military boosterism. But they also became the party of white supremacy, racial identity politics, and preserving the status quo. They learned in 1964 that they won votes by catering to white supremacists and leaned into that by stoking racial division in order to keep that a viable source of political power. In 1981, Lee Atwater, the Republican political strategist who had worked for Republicans like Strom Thurmond, Ronald Reagan, and George H.W. Bush, gave a very now famous interview to a political scientist in which he tried to explain the Republicans' party for using race to their advantage. This quote includes a racial slur, which we are not going to say, but I think you'll still get the picture. Oh my God, I love this interview. It's like one of my most favorite things. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's like the most mask off that the that a, a Republican strategist has like ever been. Yeah. So, so this is Lee Atwater's, uh, um, what he's saying to this political scientist, quote, you start in 1954 by saying N-word, N-word, N-word. By 1968, you can't say N-word. That hurts you. It backfires. So you say stuff like forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff, and you get so abstract. Now you talk about cutting taxes, and these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and a byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. And subconsciously, maybe that's part of it. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, we're doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. Obviously, sitting around saying we want to cut taxes and we want this is a lot more abstract than even, you know, the busing thing and a hell of a lot of more abstract than N-word, N-word. So anyway, you look at it, race is coming on the back burner, end quote. This, to me, is the most powerful indicator of party realignment and the most important reason why our old pal Charlie Kirk's tweet was misleading. While the Republican Party of the 19th century cannot be described as anti-racist, 
It was a liberal, forward-thinking party that revolutionized the very definition of American and helped to complete the unfinished revolution begun by the framers of the Constitution. They exploded concepts of citizenship and expanded democracy in ways the Jacksonian Democrats, often touted as the authors of popular democracy, never could because their attachment to white supremacy and enslavement had been too strong. They created the first public support systems in the form of the pensions and in the Freedmen's Bureau. But 100 years later, the Republican Party's bread and butter was using racial division to stoke white grievance in order to win votes. And their modern day goals included chipping away at the very strides the party had made in the 14th and 15th Amendments. They moved inarguably from a left-leaning position to a right-leaning position. This doesn't work, though, for Charlie Kirk, because he wants desperately to believe that the past is uncomplicated and unchanging, and that his party, the Republican Party, is the inheritor of a proud tradition. For instance, they're very proud to claim themselves as the party of Lincoln, and admitting that the modern Republican Party doesn't look anything like Lincoln's party would mean having to accept that they don't own Lincoln. If Charlie Kirk thought historically, he'd of course know that his tweet made no sense. But he can't, because not only is he probably pretty dumb, but also because thinking historically is a threat to his and to his party's worldview. After all, Donald Trump rode into office on a promise to make America great again, which relies on an inability or a refusal to think historically. Not only does it refer to an imagined, idealized past, it also styles change over time as intrinsically bad. The Republicans need the party switch to be a myth because they rely on a constructed past to sell the simplistic patriotism, white grievance, and moral panics about a degenerating society that they use to stay relevant. I could very easily continue to rant about this, but I'll end just by saying this. Historical thinking isn't just about passing your freshman history survey. Historical thinking skills are critical to your being able to interpret and understand the world around you. Mic drop. Mic drop. So I should say that I I did end the sort of exploration of political parties, like the, the American political party system there in what, the 60s, 70s. Lee Atwater gives that interview mm-hmm. in 1981. And I did that partly because the, I believe it's considered the sixth political party system is the one that is, that emerges in, in 1964. And it more or less remains the same. I'm not saying that every aspect of the the party platforms and planks stay exactly the same. They don't. But where the Democratic Party is now and where the Republican Party is now is pretty close to where they were at the mid 20th century. Mm -hmm. I know that there's some discussion of whether or not the, the election of Donald Trump in 2016 sort of heralded something a little bit different. Right, like a new party realignment, possibly. Right. But, that we just can't recognize yet. Yeah, and, but I'm not sure about that. Like, I, that that's, like, more for me, like, the, the, the purview of political scientists right now than it is historians. So that's kind of where I decided to end. That makes complete sense. 
And um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I always think about when that party shift was happening, what, you know, what it meant to be a Republican was changing, what it meant to be a Democrat was changing. And so you could no longer for that brief period of time, I think, you know, from like, I don't know, the 30s to the late 50s, maybe, um, or 1930 to 1960, while that shift was happening. I, it makes me wonder if that they didn't have these kind of coded ways of speaking, right? Because now we can say, like, mm-hmm. uh, we can, we can, if someone says, like, oh, they're really into America, then you know that that person's probably a Republican. Like, there's, like, there's, like, right. um, these sort of code words and um, shorthands mm. that we use to identify what political party we identify with. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, yeah, right. I do, and I, I do. and it makes me, I always think when that shift was happening and, and the kind of ground was moving underneath their feet, they must not have really been able to do that. Right. Because, because it was too complicated there. It mm. wasn't bipolar. It was, it was, mm-hmm. I don't know quadrupolar I don't know if that's a word but you know what I mean there was too much yeah I, I yeah I do I do get what you're saying and I think an important part of this something that I chose not to include uh, but I think speaks to what you're what you're talking about is like where the Democratic Party is in 1968 right like the the Democratic National Convention in 1968 is so contentious that there's literally riots outside because the party is so out of step with where young liberals were Right. And so, you know, we think of like, Mm -hmm. who was the most liberal people in the 60s and 70s? Well, they were like the hippies. They weren't the 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 people in positions of like people shaping the Democratic Party. And so would they have considered themselves Democrats? Right. Like, so I see what you're saying that like there's it was almost like more spectrum and that now it's a little bit more hardened where there's definitely a very there's a very lefty part of the democratic party and there's a, a very right wing like a hard right wing of the republican party but people still have allegiances to the party right but but those kind of very loud contingents um end up sort of swallowing the rest of the party you know you end up having Mm -hmm. to align yourself Mm -hmm. with one of those contingents because we have a two-party system you know um and so it's just interesting we've had little tiny snippets in history of where we have had more than two parties that are sort of dominant you know just but it's only been for a very brief period of time um and i always kind of wish i could have lived during one of those times just to see what it was like you know how what it was like to chat about politics Mm -hmm. um you know, at a time like that, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe like Ross Perot, maybe he counts as like a, a valuable, a valid third party. I don't know, but um, yeah, and and like Reichley, uh James Reichley made the makes the point at one point in that book that like we see like one sort of hallmark of American party politics is that third parties will emerge, but that they virtually always then fold into or are absorbed by one of the two main parties. Right. Right. So Ross Perot is, you know, that's like a real moment, but Ross Perot doesn't win. Right. Like he, like that is just, is like merged in or like the tea party movement. Right. Is like 
pulls the entire Republican Party more to the right. Um, right. Whereas, like, but you're right. There were moments where there were genuine third parties. I mean, like, the Republican Party starts as a third party. Mm-hmm. But then after that, I don't know that there was ever one that was as successful. Right. right? Yeah. And it just, it makes me, you know, I'm not a political scientist. Probably a political scientist knows the answer to this, but it just makes Mm -hmm. me wonder why we're so, in the U.S., so kind of attracted to that bipolar flattening, you know? Um, Whereas, like, in other countries, it's not necessarily like that. Um, Right. You know, there there are very viable third, sometimes even fourth parties in, Mm -hmm. um, in other representative democracies, you know? So it just right. kind of makes me wonder what it is. Maybe it's just because we're so large, such a large country um, and such mm-hmm. a diverse country that it ends up having to kind of be flat and like that. It's kind of interesting. So I'm yeah. glad that you did this. It's been a long time coming. Um. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it was really challenging because it's so there's so much. So thanks for joining us today. Um, We invite you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at dig underscore history or join our Facebook group, the Dig History Pod Squad, for all kinds of memes and historian hijinks. So if you have a comment or a question or you want to share kind words with us, um, you can always email us at hello at digpodcast.org. We love listener mail. Um, we, We forward it to each other and we love it. Um, if you're an educator, we've got a compendium of episodes you can use in the classroom and free teaching resources, including full lesson plans on our website, digpodcast.org. You'll also find full bibliographies, the scripts for all of our episodes, resources, and a link to our swag store at digpodcast.org. See ya. Bye. The Muskogee, <laughs> the Muskogee Creek and Seminole, Seminole, why can't I talk? And and Seminole. Oh my, reading that one quote was a real journey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Location on the political left. Laugh. (laughs) By Charlie Charlie Quirk. Oh my God. You'd think I didn't break this. A new coalition party was born in 1854, likely somewhere in Wisconsin. 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 Okay. In terms of platform, the new Democrats. What was that? Hmm. A little thing fell off of my my mic stand. The Republicans also had political machines, though it tended to be more centered on federal rather than state or local machines, with senators often serving as the heads of machines. How many times can I say machines? Take one of them out. Oh my god. Okay, well I was gonna just let the two slide, then I thought, no, there's three. Um <laughs> Okay. I think I'll start talking without having my microphone at all. Hang on. <laughs> I should probably talk into my microphone. <laughs> Your little hand microphone. Oh my god, I made every single one of these on the um, between Roosevelt's death, death. Okay, I'm killing. It. I'm so it's so hot in my in my closet. I'm just like I have sweat pouring down my whole body. It's very uncomfortable. Um, oh. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot 
for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart, Brian.